Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick-hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. On this episode, it's time to get on board with getting cool. I sit down with Kip Barnes of Los Angeles Ale Works and talk about his keeping his homebrew spirit alive while running a professional brewery and his recent experiments with the old-school cool of the traditional cool ship method of cooling and inoculating your wort. We'll start pro and then get into ideas for homebrewers who want to get just a little bit wild. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. think of the the blockchain you know i uh, i agree with you. i think the the coconut mm-hmm. really it does something to the fruit character that kind of makes it just feel more well-rounded and particularly like if you're going for that uh milkshake thing like mm-hmm. you know i get that milkshake idea i think it needs that that sweetness that's coming from the coconut to round it out yeah we did two different versions of it and one of them was uh aggre- well this is the second version so i made a milkshake uh recipe brian made a milkshake recipe and you know, typically what we do is we have these little one barrel tanks and we always split a little bit off to, to, to get a little bit more extreme on the, on this, the ratio of whatever spices or fruit or whatever. In this case, it was more lactose and more vanilla and additional fruit. But, uh, his, his recipe was like super aggressive on the hopping and the bitterness, um, which we had never made one before. And, and I haven't really even had very many of them. So it was just sort of a, a test. And this is, <laughs> I don't think he expected it to be 10%. <laughs> yeah. So that's like, you know, the learning experience side of things. All right, guys, here's this. Well, and and I definitely think 
you know, the, the point about hopping, uh, hopping ratios. I think that's one of the bigger problems here on the West Coast with people making these hazy IPAs. The milkshake's even weirder, though, because that lactose, like, fights with the bitterness. Mm-hmm. They fight each other so – and the vanilla, too. They fight each other so much that you end up uh, – if you use too many – if you if you're if you're nor if you're making a normal hazy IPA ratio of of hops, it, it totally destroys the vanilla lactose balance. Mm-hmm. And not having made one before, that wasn't something that we knew. And now that we've made two of them, I mean, and then a couple of variations with with a higher ratio of lactose and vanilla, it's it's clear that we just need to. And it's a good thing because, you know, the vanilla is so expensive these days that like dialing back the hop profile just makes the beer that much more affordable <laughs> for us to make. But yeah, we do everything in the the whirlpool too. So that that makes it hard to kind of calculate what the IBUs are going to be because depending on the temperature of the whirlpool, we're we're not really you know, we'd have to have some sort of I don't know, computer hooked up to the whirlpool that's like tracking the temperature and the potential isomerization over the amount of time. I know that there's a calculator out there, but it seems like most of the whirlpool calculators aren't very accurate. And then you're pulling IBUs out of the out of the dry hopping too. So it's just still trying to figure this one out. Well, it's fun to play with. So, Hey, welcome everybody. Uh, you've just had an impromptu lesson in uh, milkshake IPAs as we're sitting here drinking the blockchain mango at LA Ale Works. And I'm sitting here with my good friend, Kip. Kip, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Uh, my name is Kip Barnes and I'm the, uh, the co-founder and uh, brewer um, of uh, Los Angeles Ale Works. I'm based here in Hawthorne. I'm also a, a home brewer, um, always. I've been home brewing for a while, and and we opened our brewery a little over a year ago. Now it's 2018, the start of 2018, March. I guess it's more than just the start. But yeah, we've been here for a little over a year. And yeah, we treat everything with kind of a homebrew eye. We call Anytime we problem solve it, we call it homebrewing it. Hey, why not? Homebrewers get things done. For sure, for sure. Well, and I was going to say, I, I've known you for a long time because of the homebrew connection. Yeah. And, and of course, you are also Hawthorne's first you know, craft brewery, which is awesome. Yeah. And you know, over here in a nice little corner, and, you, and you've got this beautiful old warehouse space that you've converted into, into a, a beer factory. For sure. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show today was because exactly what you were talking about, the, the homebrew mentality. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get a lot, of, a lot of professional breweries where – it's suddenly, you know, it becomes the business and, and sort of the fun and the playfulness and everything else sort of leeches away because, well, now suddenly money is on the line. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you get some of the stuff where people are like, oh, I'm making a hazy IPA because that's what sells. One of the things that, that I love is, you know, we walk outside to the, the tasting room. You've got about 20 different beers on tap and they're all... It's like 25, yeah. Uh, it, you keep adding signs in new locations. <laughs> I know. It, it's very confusing. I know, I know. But yeah, you've got all these beers and they're all... In-house beers, you, no, no guest taps, and you know you also are doing the the cold brew coffee thing, which is yeah. I, one of the things I've always admired is this very large sense of sense of playfulness. Your styles are all over the place. It, mm-hmm. it reads very much like you know we're at a homebrew festival and everybody's showing off. You know, hey, here's the fun thing that I'm doing, and that that's what's made it fun to to be, I guess, transitioning into like the commercial space. I mean, we treat everything like homebrew here, but also um, we're not located like i think if we were located in like the arts district um you know in downtown i think there's a lot more developed craft beer like scene down there it's just it's been there's a lot of breweries within walking distance of each other there's a lot of beer bars there's a lot more knowledge about craft beer even if people aren't 
referring to it as craft beer, just good beer. Um, and in Hawthorne, um, there, we do have two beer bars. We have flights and Eureka. And so some people are familiar with craft beer through those places, but they're, they're kind of, they're at a price point that detours a lot of people. Gastropubs tend to be like, you know, it's like, Oh, Hey, come in here and have our $15 hamburger. It's like maybe once in a while, you know? Well, I was gonna say, I mean, Hawthorne has always kind of been sort of criminally underdeveloped. Yeah. That mall that never. Yep. Now it's now it's being demoed and something's going up in it. We will see. Well, and, and I mean, it, it, it feels like you know, with you're going to be poised. The, the new Ram Stadium is going to be right around the corner. You know, there there's a lot of stuff coming up in the area. So you know, it's nice to see the city sort of embrace some change. And it was you know, it's kind of coincidental finding this location too. I mean, like I live in Inglewood, and Andrew lives in Mar Vista, and we knew that Mar Vista Culver City is just too expensive for opening up a a manufacturing facility, unless you're like, you know, insanely rich or you find a perfect spot. Inglewood was really limited in its industrial space too. And there's only like a couple places that you'd be able to open up. And a lot of those perfect buildings or buildings that would work, um, they, they went off the market because of the the stadium and they came back on at like a premium price. And uh, at the time we were looking for like three to 4,000 square feet because we really wanted like, you know, something sort of similar to Eagle Rock Brewery, like starting that, that, that size. As soon as we opened up our like sort of options to bigger buildings, because this building's just shy of 10,000 square feet. Yeah, I was going to say, you have, you have room for days. For sure. And uh, Andrew found this building and he was familiar with uh, SpaceX, which isn't the only reason we moved here. I mean, we were kind of... We kept, we kept on expanding our search because we couldn't find a building that matched what we were looking for. And he had a friend that worked at SpaceX on the drone program who's – he's since moved I think up into the Pacific Northwest with Boeing or something. He was like, yeah, you should check out these like old-style brick buildings that are just like south of us. And so we came down and looked at these buildings and I, I fell, fell in love with this uh, – with this, uh, with this building uh, as soon as I saw it and I was – we like – we lost it. Everyone was like, "Keep the sharp objects away from Kip." We, we, we didn't get the building. Like he's gonna, he's you know, he's gonna flip because we did, we didn't get the building. So, somebody initiate the suicide watch. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and then it it went off the market, and then it came back on the market, and then we were able to get it. You know, it's it's a it's a it's an interesting building because it's like this old school brick building and uh, bow trust because it was aerospace at one time. It's also standalone, so it's not like one of those real common like multi-tenant industrial park buildings um, where like, you know, it's like break down the concrete wall every time you want to expand your brewery. We're kind of, we're locked into this space, you know, and like we've only got so much space and we have a lot of space, but you know, we, we, we basically have like a, a limited amount of space that we can grow in. And so we have to kind of plan accordingly. I mean, you've got a really nice little uh, SS Brewtech uh, set up in there, and every time I come in, there's something new, you know, some new yeah. toy being added added in the lineup. But part of the reason why I wanted, wanted to have you guys on the on the brew files today was because, yeah, you've got all the fancy equipment, mm-hmm. but you have this very large, playful sense, and that's really played into a recent project that you guys have initiated. Something I would not have thought would really work very well in the LA area. Yeah. Because you are now actually running a cool ship. Yeah. So uh, the cool thing about this, the cool thing, we're, you know, again, homebrew roots. Uh, one of the, the, the other groups that also has really strong homebrew roots is Phantom Carriage. Mm-hmm. And we've been friends with them for forever. And they're all part of our same homebrew club, uh, Pacific Gravity in the Culver City area. Ooh. <laughs> oh, come on. We all love each other. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they opened up Phantom Carriage, uh, you know, a, a number of years ago. They just 
I guess they just celebrated their third year anniversary. Yep. Yeah. And, and they're over in Carson, California, which was yeah. another potential NFL stadium site. But yeah, yeah, it didn't didn't work out. But but uh, yeah, I mean their brewery is awesome, and and uh, you know they specialize in all like sort of wild, funky, sour, barrel aged beers. Coincidentally, they uh, use the same manufacturing company that we use to make our Kickstarter tank, Practical Fusion, up in Oregon. They do. All U.S. Uh, stainless, you know, that was the direction we originally wanted to go. Um, but they had a cool ship manufactured for them, and so um, we did a a um, we did a collaboration with them, and and we were like, hey, like, can we bring your cool ship over here? So it's their it's their cool ship, and we we uh, we brought it over here, and we made a collaboration beer, which um, it does have a it does have a code name, and I I'm not sure if it's gonna if it's going to be the name yet. So, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a spontaneously fermented, um, like a Pilsner, uh, unmalted wheat beer. Basically mm-hmm. they were like, Oh, you know, we're having our, our anniversary, uh, in a couple of days. Like we really don't want this giant cool ship, like in our building. Like, would you guys like to hold on to it? And we're like, yes. Cause the window for cool ship is, is closing. And like, this is probably the last weekend before the, the temperature raises. Well, I was going to say to describe the weather right now for everybody, this is a odd LA winter because we're kind of shifted off by a couple of weeks from a, sort of our normal winter patterns. Yeah. And so we are sitting here, it's towards the end of March. We are actively getting rained on, although right now we have a nice break in the rain. It's cold. Yeah. It's, it's cold if, for LA. I mean, I think our high today was 62. And, you know, this is, yeah, this is prime, this is prime, hey, you know, we're going to do something spontaneous because, yeah, next week we're back up into the 70s and uh, slowly making our ramp up to where we're going to get to in the summer, which is somewhere in the hundreds. Yeah, and and the the weather is like such a huge part of this. Uh, So, I mean, for anybody that doesn't know what a cool ship is, uh, first off, I just want to say like, so the barrel director of LAL Works is Brian Holter, who's yet another uh, uh Pacific Gravity home brewer guy. And, uh, you know, he's he's really trying to push the brewery to do a lot of these, like, wild, funky Brett beers and all sorts of cool, like, sour projects, and he wants to blend them all together. So, you know, he's – when we were talking about making a sour – or a collaboration with Fire, uh, with uh, with Phantom Carriage, um, we didn't really know what we were going to do. Um, and, you know, of course, Brian and Simon are talking, and they're like, oh, man, we got to make this thing as, like – funky as possible and then it was like chris depot over there was like yeah let's use the cool ship and everyone got super excited so they bring this big uh or we we bring this big square open tank over and that's what a cool ship is it's like an open fermenter so let's lay out the basics right so i mean cool uh, cool ships they're an old school technology Mm -hmm. most commonly associated modern uh beer mines with the lambic producers particularly cantillon in in brussels really what it comes down to is it's a shallow tray that's designed to hold wort in it, or sorry, freshly boiled beer in it mm-hmm. overnight to allow it to cool down. It's supposed to be shallow so that you get maximum surface area because that's how you get heat exchange happening. Yeah. And of course, the fun thing is that since it's open, whatever is in the environment gets into the wort. And as the wort cools down below that point in time where it pasteurizes things, those things can take hold, which is why we get things like Lambic. This cool ship that you guys are using between you and Phantom Carriage, how big is it and how much does it hold? Um, God, I want to say it's like it's it must be like eight by ten mm-hmm. feet. It's got to be like a foot and a half deep. It hold it holds about it holds about twelve barrels at the max. Wow, maybe maybe, maybe a little bit under that. I mean, we're talking like to the brim, and we're we try to push it because 
if, if you, the, the, the sort of equivalent, like we tip, we typically have, uh, our barrels, um, with our, with our, our trusses and our ceilings, we can stack six barrels, two by two by two. So three rows, uh, so stack three high. And, uh, that is, that is equivalent to about 12 barrels of beer. And so our target when we're brewing a sour beer or anything that's going to go into barrels, we'd like to get six barrel, six casks of beer. And that's around 12 barrels. Um, the problem with the, the cool ship is, is, you know, simple evaporation Mm -hmm. and also all of the hot break and all of the sort of heat exchange protein, all of that stuff, all the troop that all separates in the cool ship. So the cool ship being this archaic way of cooling down beer and, you know, now it's being used to inoculate beer, all these different things was replaced by the whirlpool and the heat exchanger. Like both of those two replace the cool ship. Totally a way that you can get a, a sanitary, you know, yeah. no exposure to the environment. Exactly. Chill and, everything down immediately. And then there's breweries like, like uh, Anchor Steam, you know, Anchor Brewing up in San Francisco that uses – essentially cool ships to ferment their beer in a in a sanitary environment well yeah know? if you go into anchor brewery yeah they, they, or even sierra nevada where they ferment uh, bigfoot in those yeah. tanks as well yeah you look at them i mean th- yeah they're open pools but they're open pools inside of a closed room yeah. with positive pressure to keep anything yeah. out so we do the exact opposite so this very first cool ship that we did you know simon came over and and uh, chris was unfortunately not able to make it but brian and i and simon um, you know, set up to try to make this beer and it's a, it's got a really aggressive, uh, mash. It's basically like a multi decoction sort of thing. Like you have to take so out going for like a turbid mash type turbid mash. Yeah. So it was, I can't remember how many hours it took to actually get through it. Cause we, we had to modify it slightly for our system. Cause we, we don't have, well, yeah. we've never used it for this for this thing. So, well, and you don't have decoction uh, capabilities no. or anything else. Well, I mean, you- we, we what we what we were able to do was pull the wort from because we have a grant tank and you know we've got a mash louder ton, so we were able to pull the wort into the boil kettle, boil it, and then pump it back into the mash through the vorloff, mm-hmm. and that was what raised the temperature for each of the steps. And then we'd pull it back into the boil kettle and we'd boil it again, and then we'd pump it back in and pull it back in. It was like, I think it was like four or five different boil steps. And each one of these steps was adding a significant amount of protein to the bottom of the boil kettle. And that's something, I mean, makes sense now when you think about it. But at the time, we didn't really think about it. And uh, we had a pretty significant scorch on the bottom of the kettle that took me a uh, uh, like two, three days to clean. It was pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, point of order. You? Yep. Yes. You yeah. actually climbed in. Yes, climbed yes, yes. Good owner. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, so I think um, something that I want people to, to understand and know about our brewery that, you know, you kinda, you can choose to care about it or not, but like we're we're the owners and we're also the brewers. I mean, like we do everything. I mean, like it, that's not to take away from the team that's here that's also doing stuff. I mean, it's just we're, we're in the trenches. I mean, it's not like – You're leading by example. Yeah, yeah. And so um, there's another Pacific Gravity guy here, Lloyd, uh, who's been brewing with us since the beginning. And he's uh, he's my co-brewer. Um, or he's, his title is lead brewer now. So I'm head brewer and he's lead brewer. I don't like to use the brewmaster title because, frankly, you know, you got to earn that over a long period of time. But we brew everything together and, you know, he cleans and I clean. I mean, and he brews and I brew like we do, you know, we do everything. We have some cellar guys. Titles 
only sort of matter here. Like everyone's doing everything to get the job done. But so we do this this cool ship turbid mash takes forever, and then um, we boil it. And, and just real quick, just to resummarize, yeah. the, you had five different steps in the in the turbid mash that you were doing. I, I wish I had my notes in front of me. It was that it's it's such a different brew that it didn't fit in our normal like brew sheet, and we were just kind of writing freehand on a clipboard everything that we were doing and again the base beer was essentially pilsner and raw wheat right or unmalted wheat yeah unmalted wheat we did a protein rest i want to say we did a sub protein rest and then we did something like an acid rest yeah like in the 100 exactly and then we did a protein rest and then we 22 yeah and then we brought it up to beta so you're 148 140 140, and then we brought it up to sack and then we brought it up to to mash out and then then we we sparged with uh, we pre-boiled about 14 barrels of water and put it in our whirlpool. So having three vessels is really helpful for this thing that we found out. Um, and we, we, we mashed out our, yeah, we mashed out and sparged with the, um, with the boiling water that was in the whirlpool. And then we collected everything in the kettle. And then the sort of byproduct of this turbid mash and, and raising, you know, adding all this water and everything is that you basically over dilute and you have to boil down to the gravity that, you know, that you want to get. So that's what takes forever usually. So you had, I mean, cool ship target volume of 12 barrels. Mm -hmm. So how many barrels did you have collected into the kettle? Oh, I think we, I want to say we collected like 13 or 14 and we boiled down to 12. Okay. So, uh, so I mean, mean, really you're, you're not talking about that massive, but still we boil off about 15 gallons every 90 minutes. So, so if you're if you're one barrel over, you're talking at least a minimum of like three, two and a half hours, yeah, or three hours, three yeah. hours, yeah. And that depends on how like our our boiler is actually oversized, like the actual flame that goes through the the burner. Um, well, that's a good plan. That's always a better plan. We have to be careful because it's it's oversized for what we have. So if we turn it above fifty percent, it's like danger. That's the that's I think what scorched the bottom of the of the kettle. Yeah, but, but yeah. let's face it, it's a much better problem to have yeah. that than it's the other way around. The Tim the Tim the Toolman Taylor problem. Yeah. You know, overpower the vacuum cleaner and it busts through the wall. But yeah, we we uh, we we boiled it for a really long time, and I think I want to say we knocked out at like ten o'clock. So it not, knocked out at ten o'clock after starting when we st- we started at nine a.m. So, so you're 13 hours. That's a long day. That's not as, I mean, if I mean, we had gone brutal, in, it's not no. as brutal as like the old school European methods where you're, where you're talking like many, many, many hours. Well, where, but the 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 addition to this was that we don't use the whirlpool. We don't use the heat exchanger. Oh, sorry. And yeah, we don't use the whirlpool, and we don't use the heat exchanger. We go straight into the cool ship with the boiling wort, which is hey, that's great. You don't have to wait 45 minutes to go through the whirlpool and the heat exchanger. But now the wort has to cool. <laughs> so Brian and I were like, oh, man, how are we going to make this thing cool? Like, you know, like, all right, well, everybody opens their windows and they open up their, their uh, you know, their loading doors and let the wind in and they got fans and everything. And I was like, I'm not going to leave the loading doors to this building o- open overnight, <laughs> like in this neighborhood. Like, you know, neighborhoods, you know, it's it's an industrial it's an, district. Any, any neighborhood. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, let's leave your front door open and, and you know, you're just inviting trouble and, and – um, so Brian and I were like, all right, well, we're going to leave the doors open and we're going to sleep here overnight. So we we pulled out uh, two pallets each. And uh, I think I laid on a bunch of Vienna lager and he laid on some Pilsner and some rye and wheat. And we made a bed out of grain and we slept here overnight. And then we, we uh, with the doors open, 
and in sleeping bags on ba- beds of grain. And then we woke up at, uh, I think it was, I mean, sunrise. <laughs> and then we started testing the temperature of the cool ship. And we were almost there. Like it takes about 12 hours for it to get down to about 70 degrees, which right, is what so, we were looking for. So I was going to say, you went into the into the cool ship yeah. at like 10 o'clock at night at, yeah. at just off the boil. Yeah. And so by the time you're up at, you know, say sunrise, so around like 637 o'clock. 637, yeah. Yeah, you've got it down to almost around 70. Yeah, it was probably like 75 or 80. And those last like couple of degrees take a little bit longer. Yeah. So, so all right. So we wake up at 637 and the the temperature is at probably like 80 degrees. I, I, I can't remember. Brian Brian took the temperature, but it takes about 12 hours to get down to 70 degrees. Well, and, and just for the record, you know, mm-hmm. again, because we're talking L.A., I think during this period of time that you're talking about, what the overnight temperature got down into like the mid 40s or something, right? Or, yeah, it was like yeah, mid mid high 40s, and uh, and then there was actually a lot of wind. And and you know, t- traditionally, um, I think you're looking for like a for a rain, you know, like right before you right before you kind of knock all the dust out. Of the na- air. Knocks all the dust out of the air. It makes the air really clean, so you're only getting like the microbes that you want to get. And it it did rain, so it, we we got this really clean air coming in. And uh, so Brian waited for the uh, for the temperature to drop while I continued to clean the brew kettle, which I started at ten and I didn't stop until one. I had, I think I did four cycles of caustic uh, sodium hydroxide and then two cycles of acid. Which, you know, that was like one of the biggest things to learn, like from the homebrew to the commercial side is just the chemicals are different. It's like, it's like, oh, I got PBW on my and arm. I got star sand on my hand. Caustic. Oh my gosh. It like bur- it burns you on contact. You know, I've gotten it in my eyes. Like this, it's like so dangerous. Um, well, there, there's a reason why it's not made commonly available to homebrewers, or at least not very commonly encouraged. Yeah, I mean, well, it's 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 lie. I yeah. mean, that's yeah. So, sodium hydroxide is not something to uh, to mess around with. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's it's uh, that was a big thing to learn. But we just went straight into barrels. We hooked up the cool ship to a couple of hoses and a pump, and then we just pumped it directly into the barrels. And then it was just a waiting game. After it hits seventy degrees, it's ready to go into the barrels. And then they, you know, reading all of these articles about cool ships, it sounds like it's. Uh, Anywhere from, you know, a couple weeks to a couple months to get spontaneous fermentation. There's always a ton of factors that come in. I mean, we're in a we're in a warehouse building. There's trusses above. We've got grain. You know, we've got all this stuff in the building. We're putting them into used wine barrels. Like the wine barrels have been steamed, and then we steam them as well. But um, so you don't really know where the yeast is coming from. But um, You'd like to think that some of the microbes you get is from from the air, but we got we got fermentation after I think two days. One of the common things that people say about you know say Cantillon, which is probably the most arguably famous continuing user of of cool ships, is that oh well yeah okay fine they do this exposure and of course everybody's got the legend oh you know they turned their tiles around on the roof when they had to go replace the roof so that the roof you know the tiles were still contributing whatever microbes they had. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people who say, okay, well, you, that's great. That's a lot of romance. But really where the inoculation is happening, where most of the good stuff's happening, is from the barrels. So now when you guys went into the barrels, were those – like what sort of barrels were those? Were those – So we, we got a bunch of barrels from a – we got a bunch of barrels from a um, – from a winery up in Santa Barbara called Sea Smoke. And they're a oh, P- yeah, they're a Pinot Noir house mostly. But we got a couple of Chardonnay barrels, and we got uh, mostly Pinot barrels, and they're they're all like freshly dumped. And uh, they did 
they did steam and rinse them, which we were like, you know, we're like, all right, next time, you know, just don't, don't just do give that. Them to us yeah, just don't do that. They're, they're like, yeah, but it has all this crappy must in it that you were like, no, no, that's please like leave that in there. Yeah, they were steamed and cleaned and and we steamed we steamed them and then we also rinsed them out to to swell them back up just to make sure we don't have any leaks and check for barrel beetle like holes and all that stuff. Uh, how, how much would that suck if you like oh look I'm going to pour this beer that I've just been working on for 24 hours into a barrel and next thing you know oh man just spraying everywhere. Some of these that I mean so I I've used barrel I used barrels on the homebrew side but they're small and they don't seem to have the same issues with barrel beetles. Mm -hmm. So I had never never really experienced the whole barrel beetle thing. And it's just like, they make these just like termite holes through the barrel. And it's just like a sieve. It's just like they, you know, it's a really clean hole and the, the liquid just makes its way out. And you've, they have these really special, like little teeny spiles that, that are made to go in, in these holes. And, and so some of these barrels just have lots of these little spiles sticking out of them and these little chunks of wood to, to cover up all the holes. But but yeah, I mean, I, I have, I'd have to imagine that even with steaming, I mean, that you have lots of microbes living in the wood. My thought, though, is that like, I feel like these microbes that are deeper in the wood may, might take a little bit longer to like, get into the beer. I, I'm not sure like where the inoculation for this beer is coming from. I mean, I you know, we'll never know. I mean, unless you know, we can send it to a lab and, and get get it analyzed. But I don't know if they're going to be able to tell us exactly like. You know, they'll tell us what strains, you know. Well, that might be interesting to find out because, I mean, again, uh, so people who aren't familiar with the location mm -hmm. of the brewery, I mean, we're in Hawthorne. We're only about three miles away from LAX. Uh, we're super close to a, a fairly large freeway, the 105, mm -hmm. here in LA. And those are sort of antithetical to, like, at least the whole romantic notion of what people have for, like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, when Cantillon was doing their cool ship thing, you know, they were they were in the middle of orchards. And and I've always talked about, like, some of the best spontaneous fermented beer I've ever had on the homebrew level were guys doing things at the Southern California Homebrewers Festival where they brewed beer and then left that out overnight when it was up in Lake Casitas and it was near all the, the orange groves and avocado trees and all that sort of stuff over in Santa Paula. So it, like, there's always sort of this, this, Oh no, don't do the, don't do it. If you're near an industrial area, do it when you're like in an agricultural area. But I mean, we are in, in an industrial area. I mean, you know, you, you do what you, you have access to. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think if you, if you asked Brian and, you know, Chris Depot and Simon, you know, at Phantom. And if you asked all of us and you said, Hey, do you want to go up and make some spontaneous wort in the middle of the, the Firestone vineyard? I'd be like, yeah, of course. Uh -huh. but it's like, we're not going to do that. You know, we're here. There's a lot of plant life. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, if you, I mean, if you, if you have hay fever, you know, that pollen is in the air. I mean, you know, it, Santa Ana winds start blowing and it was windy that night too. So Santa Ana winds start, start blowing. I mean, you know, you're getting a face full of like pollen and all sorts of stuff and you just cause you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And I think some of the good stuff is still in there. Chris is telling us, uh, cause he has a lot more experience. Uh, Chris Depot over at Phantom. He, I think he was at magic hat before Phantom and, um, he was telling us like, all right, so the very first phase of this cool ship is the tomato soup phase. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, okay. And yeah, I like go out there and smell the barrels and they smell like tomato soup. And I'm like, huh, well, I can't wait okay, at least for a this year. Is, this is expected. <laughs> I can't wait for a year until it's not smelling like tomato soup. Hopefully it's fine. 
But I think that's kind of the allure to this thing. It's, it kind of brings us back to the whole homebrewing thing is you're just like you're in it to learn. And that's, you know, we talked about hazy milkshake beers uh, earlier. And, and at least for me, like we've been brewing a lot of these classic styles and a lot of the styles that do really well, we brew a lot over and over again. The milkshake and the hazy IPAs are still like uncharted territory for me. It's not something I ever focused on when I was homebrewing. And I still like know a very like limited amount about it. I read about it and I taste them. But every time I make one, it's like, you know, it's, it's not that it's all hocus pocus. I just don't know uh, too much about it. I'm learning about it all the time. And it makes me feel like I'm homebrewing again. You know, it's like, I, I just I, I I get that kind of like rush when I'm making these beers and when I'm tasting them through fermentation, which is which is nice. And I think, uh, you know, I think you might, as a commercial brewer, might might lose that sometimes if you're you know you're making your your flagship, you know, Kolsch for the seven thousand time. Uh, which, by the way, you do make a very nice flagship Kolsch. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's because we have such hard water here. That's that 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 was one of the things I th- I thought was really interesting. I didn't realize that you know historically. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, river water is hard, so everyone wants to use like super soft water for the Kolsch, but it's like no, it's hard water. Well, so now keeping the homebrewer hat on, mm-hmm. right? You know, obviously you had access to this giant stainless steel, you know, vessel in order to be able to do your cool ship. If you were doing this at home, how, how do you think that you would take the practical experience that you have now and turn to something that a homebrewer could do? I mean, I think it, it's actually probably something that could be done pretty easily. I mean, the biggest, the biggest issue that I think you're going to have is uh, trying to make sure that you're not inoculating your beer with anything that you don't want to inoculate it with. Mm-hmm. Meaning like if you, you know, I could see you easily taking a cooler, like a, you know, like a Rubbermaid cooler or something, a big square cooler and using that as a cool ship. Mm-hmm. I'd have to make sure that it was clean, you know, cause obviously yeah. if it's not clean, then you might be introducing something else. But I think, um, I mean, I never, I've never done a cool ship um, on the homebrew side, but I think that uh, using a, your brew kettle or using um, some sort of shallow rectangular vessel could could be really easy to to do. And then you just have to you just basically follow the same same guidelines of of cooling it. I mean, the wort that you put in is really where you have a lot of freedom to do what you want. You don't have to do a turbid mash. Brewers like doing turbid mashes because there's the method traditionnel, like the way that the Belgians did it. Like if you want it to be method traditionnel, you have to do A, B, and C. Well, and in theory, the traditional method yields a lot of starch into the exactly. wort. And the starch provides food for bacteria and cultures other than Saccharomyces and Brettanomyces. Exactly. And- you're, 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 you're ending up with a, a very different wort than you would be if you were just making that flagship Kolsch. But there's other ways to get that word and you can abridge it a little bit because, you know, it may not be an option for you to do it, you know, to brew for 12 hours, you know, however long it takes to, to make it. But um, once you figure out what you want to do with the word and how you want to make it, cooling it, um, you know, it really just comes down to like making really watching the weather report and making sure that you have clean air and a clean place to put it because, um, one of the things that um, I think a lot of these breweries have in them um, that are using cool ships is, are, are fans. You know, if if it's not like a hermetically sealed room, mm-hmm. they have fans because uh, bugs don't like air current. 
And and if you have a fan blowing over the cool ship, not only are you, you know, you're cooling it down, but you're also trying to prevent flies and bugs from falling into it. You're making rapids above your above your word. Yeah, exactly. Make it challenging. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But yeah, you, you know, then you're just going to, you know, you're going to probably figure out a calculation Um because it's all about you know the volume, like how long it's is it going to take for it to to cool down for for to cool down twelve barrels of wort, it's going to take a lot longer than five. So, you know, I think leaving it overnight in an open area is probably like something that you could do. So I wonder, just in terms of vessels, like if you're going to go big, right? You know, like because I think like if you're going to do this sort of thing, you come up. This is almost like a special project, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this is something you're going to really attempt. Part of me wonders if you just can't like go get like a brand new utility sink, like you know the plastic utility yeah. laundry sinks. Yeah. Plug up the plug up the the drain spout, so that you have an actually convenient drain point, mm-hmm. and use that because that, that's at least going to be a little more shallow. Yeah. Or you know I know Cambro, you know who makes all those restaurant buckets that that's, everybody uses. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, you can get chafing they, dishes. Yeah, they've got chafing dishes. You got you know restaurant style uh, pans, and some of them are in plastic that are mm-hmm. like nice thick plastic that you could probably use. Would get a weldless get a weldless fitting ball valve, and then and then get a bunch of chafing dishes and drill a hole and put the the ball valve on there. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to handle it when it's boiling because you're, you're, you're putting the wort in when it's boiling. As soon as that wort goes into the pan, goes into the cool ship, you, you're not moving it. You're not touching it. You know, you got to be safe with that. But I mean, if you buy like a little like uh, utility cart, you could put like several layers of, of these, these chafing dishes on it mm-hmm. and you could, you know, figure out whatever the volume is for each of these chafing dishes and probably do like a pretty good amount of wort and have uh, the fan blowing over the whole utility cart. Amazon has yeah. baker's racks that are, you know, the wire baker racks that are fairly cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could totally like set up like, you know, like four layers with some chafing dishes. That could probably, that would be, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, well, and in theory, because you've got all these smaller volumes, one would hope that they would actually chill off a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. So... But you know, the inoculation point is that's the that's the that would be the well. But I mean, I think you're still going to have that good long point because it's always going to be a long tail, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's like yeah, you'll probably drop out of the high heat faster, Mm -hmm. but you're still going to have that smaller delta T holding on to things. Yeah, Yeah. holding on to things for a long period of time. Yeah, and then and then after you're done cooling it, I mean, you really have kind of you know the kind of the world's your oyster in terms of what you want to do. I mean. Like I, I was talking to Brian about this. I'm just parroting what Brian told me recently because he's been super excited about it. But he was saying that Vinny um, up at Russian River um, inoculates his cool ship wort after he does, you know, after after he's done his cool ship and his like sort of uh, specific uh, way that he does it. So he actually adds yeast on top of it. So one of the four cool ship uh, batches that we did, we we inoculated it with a, a saison strain. Um, which is the Saison Steins Monster, which if you haven't used it yet, it's a pretty cool, cool, cool strain. It's a hybrid, uh, not a blend, a hybrid of the DuPont and the French Saison. Well, and that's one of the ones that in all my testing, I usually recommend people start cool and, and let it run hot. I find with the Saison Steins Monster, I don't actually like it when it runs hot. Yeah, it, it, it has a it has a, a lower uh, high point than the normal DuPont. And, and, and yeah, it's like, I find that like going above 75 does not like yield the results that you want. Um, 
but then uh, yeah, well, and, I, and I think at the homebrew level, like even going above say seventy, doesn't it doesn't. I mean, you guys have different pressure levels that, that yeah do things. We, we typically like I think for our saison, yeah, we do like the first three three days of fermentation, three four days, and depending on how it, how it's fermenting to the to the specific gravity point that we want to get to, we we usually do it at like sixty nine or seventy, mm-hmm. and then as we get like past the halfway point, that's when we start to raise it because we just want to make sure that it has enough energy to get through the rest of the fermentation. Cause you find like with these, these big fermenters, like if, if you don't let them free rise, like at the very tail end, like that amount of, of, uh, of, uh, wort volume just, or beer volume at that point, um, it, it can drop in temperature pretty fast. And then once it's there, it's like, all right, well, how are you going to raise this temperature? How are you going to get it to your diacetyl rest? How are you going to do all these things you need to do? We talked about like how you got into the barrels. We talked about this. Obviously, you have plans. Do you have do you have thoughts about you know where you're going to take the the beer over the next year? You know, like you know, you, you talked about you know, hey, I pitched one version with saison yeast. Got to imagine there's some plan in the head to like different yeah. things you want to see. I really like barrel fermented beer. I'm not as huge of a fan of of Brett beers. Like that's a personal personal uh, uh, like, but Brian is like he loves he loves only really all wild beers but he's really really likes brett beers and well, he, he, brian's uh brett anniversary beer i'm having over here is yeah, yeah really nice. really nice um and he he really wants to take the brett program like in a pretty strong direction and one of the cool ship beers that we're doing is um basically starting um a bunch of different types of saison so he wants to build up this big saison por- portfolio so i think um in terms of uh what we want to do with the barrel program, we're looking at, um, you know, uh, just increasing the amount of bottles that we have and then also the diversity in the barrel program so that we have lots of things to blend with. And then um, taking those blends and doing different things with fruit. I mean, it's not like I don't think anything we're doing here is like super crazy. Um, we do have the Bloom Union, which is kind of cool. And we have some other uh, plans to do like a, a sour union and, and for the listeners, Bloom is your Berliner Weiss. Yeah. And yeah, you have a sort of interconnected fermentation system, not too un- unlike a union, like a Burton union. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, Bloom is like 100% barrel fermented. So we're always like, oh, people are always like, oh, is this your kettle sour? We're like, we don't have anything against kettle sours, but we don't do any of that here yet. We're not against doing it. It's just we haven't done it yet. But it's, yeah, it's 100% barrel fermented Berliner in wine barrels. So it it has a cool flavor to it. We have a we have a new version of that that is going to Coachella. That is, uh, they they said, uh, yeah, you know, we really like the idea of this Berliner Weiss, but um, we really want it to be like seven percent. And I was like, all right, so you got a bunch of people in hot weather, dehydrated, doing drugs and drinking tons of alcohol. Let's give them a seven percent beer, or you can have a thirst quenching three point five percent beer. But it's all about the price point. I, I, I get it, but at the same time, I'm just like, all, all I can say is bloom at seven percent sounds like India. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the barrel program is is still in the works, and we've got a Trello board right now going. We do uh, we do agile development practices here, and um, Brian's putting together a pretty cool plan. And we use, we like to use a lot of like foraged fruit. This year, you're going to see a lot of um, bottle conditioned one-offs uh, from these barrels as they as they not the not the cool ship ones. Those are going to be a year at least from now. But some of the barrels that we have now, you're going to start seeing those make their way into bottles. 
Well, all right. And then I think just to, to leave off any last tips for anybody who's thinking about doing a cool, shippy, wildy type beer that you can think of, particularly thinking like homebrewers, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think um, I think reading reading is probably the best thing. I mean, reading about other people that have done cool ships, breweries, brewery-wise, and figuring out what method you need to – or that you're interested in because – I frankly, I'm always, I always feel this way. Like I don't want to, I don't want anything to be overcomplicated because it obviously, it pushes people away from wanting to do it. And I, it's one of the reasons I really like Randy Mosier's uh, writing style is he's, he's so into getting people to design their own recipes right from the start, you know? And it's like, instead of like, you know, I talked, I used to talk to homebrewers who are like, oh no, you know, I don't, I don't want to design a recipe because I'm scared of that. So I just use the the homebrew stores and it's like, it's really, I mean, it's not hard to design a recipe. You obviously you have to fine tune it. It might not be great, but like get your mind wrapped around that that thing first. So the same thing with the cool ship. I mean, just do it. I mean, like I think that restaurant supply stores have really good deals on chafing dishes. Um, you know, if, if you probably already have a fan, just make sure you clean those blades before you use it. Yeah, read read uh, read up on what Vinny and uh, you know places like Allagash do for their cool ship and and some of the the Belgian brewers and figure out what method you want to you, you want to use and don't be afraid of actually at least for your first couple of attempts if you're really if you're really being careful about it don't be afraid of either inoculating with a regular yeast after you're done because you're still going to have funky stuff in there yeah. it's going to be different every time you do it the other one I, I tend to do is I will just make small inoculated starters. Like I'll take a growler or something when I go to like a an agricultural place, prop, uh, pop that open, let that go sit overnight. And then if that tastes good, then I'll go pitch it. That's a good idea. Yes. It's not traditional, you know, spontaneously inoculated beer, but shush. It still well, tastes good. Well, your starter is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're using it. Yeah, I think, I, think you can, I think you can do a lot of different things. I mean, I guess the most important part is just to do it. And also you're not going to know for a year. So <laughs> make your mistake now and learn from it in a year when it's, when it's ready to drink. And Hey, look, if it's a mistake, you don't have to tell people it's a mistake. Just take the Julia Child's uh, tack and say, Oh, this is what I meant to do. Make a, make a quick Berliner Weiss uh, and blend it into the Berliner Weiss, you know, like it, it mean, it's a way you make a fresh beer and blend and have it be a blended Lambic or something like that, you know? Blend, blend the the fault the the faults out of it. There you go. All right. So hey, Kip, thank you so much, man. Yeah, thank you, Drew. Uh, if you guys are are anywhere near Hawthorne, California, if you if you're stopping at LAX for some reason, you know, like let's say that you land at LAX and you got a layover. LAL Works is not that far away. It's a short Uber slash Lyft ride. You can get here in a in a heartbeat and, and have your pick of twenty five different beers to to drink. You'd be able to go see what happens when a home brewer actually gets to have their own professional brewery and still maintains that homebrew aesthetic. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of running a cool ship brew and a little bit about milkshake IPAs. And I'm not kidding, that blockchain mango with coconut was killer. So as Kip is fond of saying, follow the law and get cool the old school way. Now, have you ever done a cool ship? What were your results? What worries you about the whole process? Let's discuss. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. 
You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every other form, homebrew form out there. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Habitat for Humanity, helping people build their own homes. So make sure that you give us a buck, because hey, everybody needs a roof. So until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. <laughs>